Hello, everybody, and welcome back to our AP World History podcast. Um, this week, you do have a couple things to do. You have Chapter 15 and Chapter 17 to do. Uh, remember, Chapter 15 is in two parts. The majority of it is on Part 1, and the episode that says Chapter 15 continued in all caps, that is the last three minutes that kind of breaks down the last little section of your notes. So don't forget to listen to that part as well. Um, if you have not, go back and do that. Um, so this is Chapter 17, and this is continuing to go over those in the, in the Americas. Um, so chapter 17 is the diversity of American colonial society. So this is talking about America. This is talking about North America specifically. Um, so we're going to look at North America and seeing the changes there. So let's go ahead and get started. We're going to go ahead, go ahead, sorry, and start with the Columbian Exchange. So the Columbian Exchange, remember, is the exchange of plants, animals, and diseases, as well as technologies between the Americas and the rest of the world. So that includes Europe, that includes Africa, that includes Asia. So it's not just the exchange between the Europe, Europe and America. It's global exchange. So some demographic changes that are occurring at this time, we see in North America, Mexico, and then Central America um, and South America, Mexico's population decreases from 13 million to 700,000. The Maya decreased by 75%, the Mayan people, as well as the Incan decreasing by 75%. The native people of Brazil decreased by 50%. So think about that. That is a lot of people. And they're dying from the, the, the diseases that are the Europeans are going ahead and bringing um, here that they are already immune to, but these new native peoples are not immune to. Um, they're also dying because of forced labor and, of course, being murdered or persecuted by the Europeans. So the Europeans, even though many of us may be descended from Europeans, even if we are a member of um, Latin America, Central America, Mexico, or even South American ancestry, we do have that European connection, whether it be Spain, whether it be Portugal, it's still there. So it's kind of crazy to think that these people who helped to found these modern countries of like Brazil, of Argentina, were the ones that really decimated the local populations to begin with. It's really crazy to think about. So we see this huge, huge change within the population um, because of these biological factors. And we'll continue to see what other influences the old and new world have with each other. So moving right along to section two, the transfer of plants and animals. So we have this exchange between the old world and the new world. So from the old world, the new world receives four different types of products. Um, and many, many more. But if we're talking about just plants, um, let's go ahead and say they gain wheat, they gain olives, they gain grapes, and they gain garden vegetables. So that's like your cucumbers, that's like um, lettuce, cabbage, cauliflower, those types of things. Um, but they also receive products from Asia and Africa. And these products that are coming are rice, bananas, coconut, breadfruit, and sugar as well as maize, potato, potato, and manioc being exchanged for those Asian and African and old world products. So maize, remember, is a high yield grain. It is corn. Corn, maize is just another word for corn. It's a high yield grain that could produce more food per acre than wheat or barley or oats that they were already producing in Europe. So it is a high yield and high caloric plant. So it's really, really great for large populations. Um, as well as the potatoes. The potato, again, is an American 
product is an American, is native to the Americas, um, and it is a staple crop for the European poor, it, or it will become a staple crop for the European poor. This is where we'll see later in the future, uh, in the 1800s, that um, potato blight in Ireland, um, super crazy, but it, it highly impacts Europe because it is a staple crop, or it will become a staple crop. And then, of course, we have manioc. Uh, manioc is high caloric yield food as well. It's a root vegetable. Um, you can make it, um, you can ground it into a powder or into a flour and make it into a bread. And the bread made from the manioc could last up to six months. So think about that. In a time when you don't have a lot of ways to preserve food, this crop, this staple crop would be great to be able to have long journey. So this would be good um, to create bread for those long exploration trips, trips or uh, maritime travel, it'd be great. So this is a great invention or a great crop to have. Okay, so moving right along, we have Antonio de Mendoza. Antonio de Mendoza is the first viceroy of Mexico. So that's like the first governor of Mexico, the royal governor of Mexico. So he has been appointed by the king and queen to kind of control what's going on, do the every day in and out functions of colony. So he's the first viceroy. And he wrote to the king about the negative impact of these new world products on the, I mean, on the negative impacts of old world products on the new world. So all these things coming in, especially animals, are destroying the natural ecosystem of the North, North Central and South America. So he is just kind of writing to him to ask for help or guidance on what he should do. Um, and the impact varies. So we do have some things that are positive, like the horse is very positive for our Plains Indians in North America, um, and as well as just for everyday use in Mexico. But we do have a negative impact by another animal. Can you guess which animal negatively impacted North and South and Central America? If you said the pig, you were right. The pig is very destructive. It will go into people's um, gardens or fields and, you know, it would devour the food, devour the plants. It, they populate very fast. They breed very, very fast, kind of like almost like rabbits. Um, they are just very, very destructive. So pigs came into the landscape and almost destroyed it, um, decimated a lot of um, valuable crops for the natives. So moving right along, we have state and church. So this is where we're seeing the creation of the like a government, as well as the introduction of Catholicism into the New World. So the Council of the Indies was the most important administrative organ of the Spanish American colonies. This is the one that kind of allows everybody to have a specific part. They they dish out the roles, they dish out the laws, they dish out um, taxes, they dish out all the kind of stuff that you need to run a government. Um, so they're trying to set this up. So this is the administrative body of the American colony, the Council of the Indies. Two hundred days was how long it took for you to make a round-trip voyage. So for you to come from Spain, let's say Spain, come from Europe to the New World and back would be about 200 days. So that's, that's, a, that's a while. That's a little over six months, um, over half a year <laughs> to get there and back. But, you know, they did it. Um, and then we have another government position called the Vice Royalty, which is that Viceroy. Viceroy is just a short version of Vice Royalty. Um, it's the highest-ranking official in the Spanish colony. So just remember a viceroy or a viceroyalty is just like a governor. 
the province. He's the one that's kind of making sure everything's running smoothly for the empire, for the crown. So we also see that Portugal is colonizing. You know, they colonized Brazil, but they didn't set up a colonial government. Why? So why didn't they set up a colonial government? Well, the reason is they did not find any valuable minerals or wealth or wealthy native empires. So they were kind of just like, eh, it's not that big of a deal to us. We're not really finding anything valuable here. We'll look elsewhere. So we also have the introduction of three new trade opportunities or business opportunities in the new world, and that's gold, silver, and sugar. Um, gold, silver, and sugar increase the wealth of Spain exponentially. Um, and sugar increased the wealth of uh, Portugal as well. Um, so wealth from these trade items financed the entirety of Spanish colonial government. So the gold, the silver mine, the gold mines, the silver mines, and then of course the sugar, the creation of large sugar plantations skyrocketed the Spanish economy. So it was very, very beneficial for them to have these three um, businesses um, created and effectively ran in the new world. Then we have judicial and administrative districts. So the judicial and administrative districts are just basically like what we have today. They're ways to make the colonies more responsive to the Spanish and Portuguese monarchs. So you'll see a lot of times in colonial um, regions, so North America, South America, any place that has a colony, they tend to shy from what um, they already are used to in their old world or the mother country and they kind of try to start stepping away from that so the judicial and administrative districts were put in place to make sure that the needs of the crown Spanish and Portuguese were met and that the laws were followed and that they were doing what they needed to do so it wasn't just something just put in place for nothing then we also have the church. And remember, the church is very, very powerful. Remember, starting after the fall of Rome, we see an increased role, political, social, economic of the church. Well, it still continued. The church is the primary agent for the spread of Christianity. So the kings and the monarchs may support the spread of Christianity, but it's really the church who is the driving force behind it. So a question is, why colonize the Americas? Let's see, what is the main reason? What do we think? Usually we think of, you know, for economic profit or for new territories. Well, those are those are some reasons. But one of the real reasons, especially for Spain, is conversion, the conversion of Christianity. Yes, Spain wanted more territory. And yes, Spain wanted more gold and all that stuff. Yes. So let's not get that confused that they didn't want those things. They did. They very much wanted gold and they very much wanted more territory because they are kind of a new new state under Isabella and Fernand of Spain. So they kind of want to consolidate their power. But they also wanted to convert Christianity. Remember, Isabella and Fernand of Spain um, just recently reconquered the Iberian Peninsula. They just drove out the Muslims. They created the Spanish Inquisition to kind of bring everybody into the Catholic faith and unify Spain. They want that conversion and they want that unity all over the world. So one of their main goals is convert to Christianity. So that is why colonize the Americas, to spread out conversion and get more converts. The Amerindian elite were the first people to convert. So the Spanish way of thinking was, if we can get the rich people to do it, then everybody else will kind of fall in line. So if the rich people and wealthy people and notable people do it, then everybody else is going to copy them. 
very similar, like how people copy, who is it, like the Kardashians or people copy um, rappers or NFL players or basketball players or models or movie stars, you know, they emulate the wealthy, same thing. The Spanish clergy resorted to three ways of dealing with new converts or maybe people who were reluctant to convert. Um, So that is first training natives for the clergy. So they got the ones that were really positively responding to conversion and they started to train them as priests. Um, So they trained them for the clergy. The second is they punished the people who weren't complying. The people who refused to convert, they punished and they punished severely as well as repression. They repressed people violently. And by violently, meaning they killed people, um, they beat people, they enslaved people um, if you did not respond to conversion. So we have training natives for clergy, punishing non-compliant natives, as well as increasing violent oppression of the natives and of those who don't convert. And then, of course, we have this this man, this priest, um, or bishop, actually, Bartholomew de la Casas. He is the first bishop of Chiapas, um, and he devoted his life to reforming the conditions for the natives. He would complain to the king and he complained to the church that the colonizers were terrible, treating the natives terribly, murdering them, amputating hands or legs or feet off of people as punishment, raping, pillaging selling slaves, things like that. So he was complaining. He was saying that these people don't have rights. We need to protect them. Not only are we trying to convert these people, but it's our responsibility to take care of them as well. So he complains. And we have a set of new laws um, that started in 1542. And these were reform legislation that outlawed enslavement of natives. So prior to this, they were using slave labor of natives, captured natives, to work in the sugar plantations, the gold mines, the silver mines. But now they outlawed enslavement of native peoples. We also had another issue, and that was through linguistic and cultural differences. So, you know, the native people speak their native language, and the Spanish speak Spanish, or the Portuguese speak, or the Portugals, or the people from Portugal speak Portuguese. So, you know, there's differences in language. You can't understand each other, as well as those cultural differences. So, the people who were defeated or conquered, the native peoples who were conquered, ended up being forced to accept and start performing Catholic beliefs, Catholic rituals, and just accept it because the other option was either death, abuse, or enslavement. So they really had no choice. Now we go ahead and move on to colonial economies. So our colonial economies were how the Europeans benefited from their newly formed colonies. So we have the three main colonies. We're talking when we talk about Spain and Portugal, Mexico, Peru, and Brazil. So the effects of colonial economies on Mexico um, included those increased silver mines, the digging of the silver mines, um, and this for Europe increased trade. And it allowed them to have greater economic influence in the world. So the silver really helped to increase their economic profile as well as their state and political power. For Peru, um, silver dominated, again, like Mexico, um, until the 1680s. So Spain is very much profiting from silver from Mexico and Peru. Then we have Brazil. Remember, Brazil is a Portuguese colony. 
um, they have their sugar plantations and they are the dominating force in sugar plantations. Uh, and they fuel not only the Brazilian economy, but also the Portuguese economy till about 1540. So not very long, but it's something that's substantial for a while. We have Potosi, which was the richest silver mining center and the most populous cities in Spanish Americas. So we can understand why it would be the most populous because that's where the work is and that's where they're forcing people to perform labor, slave labor. So of course, you'll have large populations of people. How about the environmental effects? Well, we see all these economic, political effects and great and positive and awesome for the Europeans, but it's also not doing so great, not doing great things for the environment. So the environmental effects were that forests were destroyed because you had to cut down trees to help burn, help um, start fire, to help heat the silver and melt it down and all that stuff. So the destruction of forests and the introduction of mercury into the people and the environment. So mercury was, you know, very poisonous, very toxic to people and to animals and to the environment. And they used mercury um, within the process of the silver smelting and silver mining and silver melting. Um, and this would be slowly, you know, seep into people's skin when they were working in it, working with it, or it would get into the water or it'd get into the plant and animal life in the area. And it would cause people to be sick, animals die, people to die. And all that stuff. So it's not a, it's, it's, it's terrible. So they also came up with, and when I say they, the Spanish, came up with a work system. And this was called en, encomienda. Encomienda is a system of labor and economic relationship. Um, so who is involved in this um, process? Who is involved in encomienda? It's the indigenous people, and they were forced into labor roles by the Spanish. So it's between the indigenous people and the Spanish. And where? The Spanish colonies. What was it used for? It was used for forced labor um, to supply goods. So your silver mines, your gold mines, sugar, or any kind of labor. What did it pay? Nothing for the native populations. They were slaves or they were forced um, to work. So they really didn't benefit the native populations. And treatment of those natives were terrible or was te terrible. It, terrible, terrible. When I say terrible, I mean it was not good. Um, they mistreated them, they abused them, and of course, they were still kind of being plagued by these European diseases. So it was not a good time for natives, and it definitely was not a way for them to flourish or, or you know, repopulate themselves. It was continuing to cause a decline. So now we see that, remember in 15, 1542, we have those new laws that um, caused natives not to be enslaved anymore. So now Spain is looking for a new labor force, a slave labor force. So we have two groups. We have the American Indian, which were the first ones, and then we have the introduction of African slaves. So this is where we see the introduction of the slave trade. Um, so American Indian slaves versus African slaves. Let's talk about the numbers. So Africans would outnumber the natives and the Portuguese once the slave trade increases and once it commences. So the Africans will outnumber everybody the native population and the European population. The cost, um, it costs more to initially buy an African slave, um, but they kind of got it back later on. They were more productive, um, even though they costed more, they made, they, they were stronger, they were better workers than the American Indians. And of course, 
Um, how did it affect trade? Well, it affected it by two things. It increased the amount of materials they were shipping and trading, but it also increased the demand for slave labor. So now they're seeing this. They're like, oh, we want more of these people so we can make more product and we can ship out and trade more product and make more money. So now we not only have an increased trade economy, we have an increased slave economy. So we are going to definitely see an increase and rise in those two. So when we move down to colonial institutions, we have two. That is the encomienda, which is introduced by the Spanish. And then, of course, we have the mita. And remember, the mita was something that was already going on before the Spanish came. And the Spanish just adopted it. So the Spanish mita was where the Spanish required 40% of males to be conscripted to work. So 14% of the male population had to work for the Spanish for about two to four months a year. So it was similar to the old Mita, but it's just reinforced by the Spanish and used as a, as a way for them to kind of get free labor. Um, epidemics caused the American Indian populations to decline. So we see measles, smallpox, typhus, um, plague, and all these things that the Europeans bring with them that are decimating these people groups. And we see it also in North America with the English. So it's not something that's unique to the Spanish. It's just unique to Europeans. Europeans are doing this. They're bringing it in. Um, so what caused Indians to assimilate into the Catholic colonial society? So there's three benefits. Remember, there's always a benefit. They're like, if you convert to this religion, then we'll give you this or you don't have to do this. Well, the Catholic Church is the same way. They have three reasons. The first is they were unable to accept me to service. So they either weren't able to, maybe they're too old or maybe they're infirm or whatever, sick or whatever. So they couldn't accept the Mita. Um, another reason was the tax burden. So if you were Catholic or converted to the faith, then you had less taxes to pay. You didn't have to pay the high taxes that everybody else had to pay. And of course, the last one is desperation for work. Um, a lot of the times people needed jobs or maybe because um, of the increased labor for of slaves, many of the American Indians could not find work. So they were desperate. So they would turn to Catholicism for that. And then African slaves costed more. Like we said earlier, initially they were expensive, but they had two things that they outperformed the American Indian slaves in. One, they were more productive so they could work harder and faster, which is not to say that the American Indians were terrible workers or whatever, but the American American Indians, sorry, had a lot on their plate. Not only were they being forced from you know, their traditions, which remember the Africans are too, but they had never been in contact with these people groups. So they were also being biologically attacked um, through disease and through um, just increasing decline of their populations. So they weren't resistant to disease, whereas the Africans were. So the two reasons why Africans were a more valuable option or more viable option for the Europeans was that they were more productive and they were resistant to disease. Why they were resistant to disease was because they've already been in contact with Europeans for centuries. So this was not the first go around where the Africans had never been around Europeans. They've seen Europeans, they know who Europeans are. Remember, Africa was not something new. So plague and diseases and things like that had already kind of spread through and they became immune not all the time. You know, you still had people who would get sick, but most of the time they were pretty resistant and resilient to disease. So yearly we see that 
African slaves are brought in by 2,000 slaves a year. And it increased from that initial 2,000 to 7,000 within several years of the opening of the slave trade. So from 2,000 to 7,000 is the number increased from the yearly number of slaves imported. So we see this jump of 5,000 within within two or three years. It's, 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 it's drastic. And that's 7,000 slaves coming in every year. That's not just 7,000 a year or for one year and that's it. No, 7,000 every year are coming in. And then three to one is the ratio of Africans to free immigrants. So for every three Africans, you'll have one European or vice versa. For every one European, you'll have three African slaves. So you'll see that even though you have large populations of African slaves, that they're still kind of under the psychological and um, social and, of course, physical control of these people. Um, and there's a variety of reasons why language, um, the Europeans had more powerful weapons and influence and they would torture these people and rape and murder these people. It was exploitation of minorities, Africans and their Indians at this time where it was immensely terrible it's like almost undescribable of how terrible it was like i honestly can't even do it justice like what i'm saying now doesn't do anything that happened to the african slaves or the american indians any justice because we cannot even begin to comprehend the destruction the devastation that the europeans caused on them and i'm not even going to try to so silver again, was for financing European imports of Asian products. So we had this increase in silver and silver production to help import Asian products. And those Asian products would be silk, porcelain, um, and gunpowder, as well as tea later on and that type of stuff. Brazil ended up discovering gold deposits and Spanish convoys traded with Portugal and opened this kind of illegal trade system with the Spanish colonies. So the Spanish would trade with Portugal and Portugal would trade with European countries that they, that Spain wasn't really allowed to trade with. And then they would gain the product, the Portuguese, and then give it and sell it back to the Spanish colonies. But they weren't really supposed to because there are certain places that Spain could not trade with, but they did secretly. Okay, now we're going ahead and moving on to societal structures in colonial Latin America. So our first section kind of breaks it down to how people are categorized. You have your viceroys, which are your governors, then your hidalgos, then your creoles, and then your mestizos, then your mulatos, then your natives. So this is how we, and natives would also, you have your Africans as well. And this is the social hierarchy. So the social hierarchy of the Spanish colonies is listed there. So you have your royalty, then you'd have your um, hidalgos which are, you know, the second class group of people, your Creoles, which are your colonial born Europeans, so people who aren't born in Europe but born in the colonies, um, are those. The Mestizos um, are your union, the products of the union between um, Native women or Native men, and usually Native women and European men. And then you have your mulattoes, which are the product of European and African, um, and then your natives, and then, of course, your Africans. So your Africans were at the bottom. They were even lower than the natives. So we see that a lot. And then going back to your hildagos, remember your viceroy is your governor. Your hildagos are your nobility. So this is like your, um, your elite, your wealthy um, that come through here and kind of help set up the colony. So 
Africans were the fastest growing population because of that increased slave labor um, and the need for that very productive, very resilient labor force, forced labor force. Um, so Creoles, again, were people born in the new world of European descent. And actually, they were seen as less than for the most part. So remember, your viceroy were Spanish, were born in Spain, Spanish. And then your hildagos were also born in Spain, nobility. Now, your Creoles were ones that were, again, born in the colonies. They were not seen as full citizens as the people that initially were born in Spain and came here. So if you were born in the colonies, you were not on the same social class as someone who's a native Spanish. It's not the same. Um, free Blacks, um, or free Africans, did help to conquer and settle Spanish America. So we do see African influence in conquering the Aztec. We see African influence in conquering the Incan and of the Mayan. Um, so they did have um, some hand in conquering the Amer uh, Amera Indians. Juan Valiente. Juan Valiente was an enslaved African who participated in the Incan conquest. So remember, he is enslaved. So he is forced to help conquer the Incan. Does that mean he probably wanted to? I don't know. Who's to say? Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. I'm not sure, but I'm taking his enslavement as probably not wanting to. But whatever. I digress. Even though we have these large slave populations um, and these very, very small European populations, we do see slave resistance. And there was a number of ways that slaves resisted. And this is resistance throughout history. This is the same resistance that we'll see in the antebellum South and in the slave South. And we'll see all over the world in uh, Haiti, in Brazil, in Cuba, all this. The ways that slaves resisted were through sabotage, um, were through running away, and of course, rebellion, as well as malingering. So malingering means just kind of like being real slow at your work or trying to make ways for the work to be a successful kind of like loitering kind of kind of thing. Then we have the Brazilian development of the Palmares. The Palmares were runaway communities. So when African slaves would successfully run away from their owners, they would run away to these Palmares. And these Palmares were these communities out in the middle of nowhere that kind of housed these um, slaves. And they set up these communities. And they were, you know, they were, they were runaway slaves, so they were still considered slaves if they were caught, but they kind of lived together and coexisted as a community. Um, Brazilians on, or I mean, sorry, Slaves on Brazilian sugar plantations were treated very harshly. Um, they were worked practically to death. And if they did not work or they um, did not listen or, you know, went against the master, they were brutally punished. And this could be with physical mutilation, with rape, with uh, death, with being whipped, what have you. So we see a large African influence on Brazil even today. We see a large African influence. And this is because Africans are the largest ethnic group. Um, they are the largest population at this time. So, of course, they're going to have huge influence on the culture and on the language and the religion. Um, now, not not total, because remember, Catholicism is still the major religion. Spanish or Portuguese is the major language. But you do see the kind of combination um, of languages and of beliefs. Manumission is the granting of freedom to individual slaves. So if an owner has slaves, he can individually free them under the process of manumission, just giving freedom to individual slaves. Remember, mestizos is the term used by the Spanish to categorize people of mixed European and native parentage or lineage. And mulattoes 
um, was a term for an individual of African and European descent. And then we have this castus system. So the castus or costus, um, however you want to pronounce it, is set up by blood, set up by genealogy. Um, this is how an individual's genealogy affected their social status. So of course, to be the best, you had to be pure Spaniard. That was at the top. And then it, you know, went down as, as it went. Then you had, you know, your Creoles, then you had your Mestizos, then you had different variations. So if you were um, someone who was half American Indian, half European, and you married, if you were a Mestizo and you married a mulatto, um, then your child would be considered this. Or if you were a mulatto and married a um, American Indian, your child was this, or what have you. So they categorize people based on their genealogy. And we'll actually do an activity on castas painting um, on the 14th, which will be very interesting. We're going to analyze pictures, analyze paintings, and kind of classify them. So it's, it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, so how do you maintain or achieve high status? Of course, this is by being pure European descent, born in Europe. That is the highest status. So we're going to go ahead and continue. If you read race and ethnicity in the Spanish colonies negotiating hierarchy, we had, of course, your pure Europeans. Then your second is your mixed peoples. And then, of course, your third rung is your pure natives or pure Africans. So now we're moving on to the English and early English experiments. We have two experiments with the English try. The first is Newfoundland, um, Newfoundland or Newfoundland. Um, you can say both. Um, and this colony was created in 1583 and it was claimed as England's first colony. It is also Britain's oldest colony in the world. Um, so Newfoundland in 1583 was the first British colony. Um, Roanoke Island. Um, two years later, was a failed attempt to colonize Eastern North Carolina. This is where we have the group vanishing. We have um, Walter Raleigh come in, leave a group of people, men, women, and children there. Um, he comes back to England. He returns back to this new world, and everybody's gone. The only thing they find is Croatoa, or Croatoan, written or carved into a tree. And no one knows what happened to these people. Um, legend says that they were absorbed by local native tribes and they kind of just, um, the tribes took them in, cared for them because they were starving and didn't have supplies or what have you, or they were very ill or whatever. Um, they say this because there were accounts that you saw native peoples who had light eyes and fair hair and fair skin um, later on. Um, so is it, we don't really honestly know what happened. We all have, all we have are theories because we do not have vital evidence of this. Now, we move on to the south, which is the southern uh, colonies of England. And remember, Jamestown is founded in 1607. It's the first colonized um, region by a joint stock company, the Virginia Company. So this is where we think of Pocahontas, the Powhatan, or the um, native groups, the Algonquians, like that, of J uh, John Smith and all them. So <clears throat> at Jamestown, 80% of the English colonists that arrived in Jamestown died in the first 15 years. So they did not survive. Jamestown is a very, very brutal area. It's very harsh for the English. Um, of course, the English are kind of stupid, and they build their settlement on or around a swampy marsh area, which could attract malaria. Or not could, it did attract malaria and other diseases. And, of course, they did not know the first thing about anything, planting or anything like that, because the majority of the people who came over in Virginia were 
um, your lords or your gentlemen. They were not regular people who knew how to work or had worked a day in their lives. They were the, usually most of them were the youngest son who was not going to inherit anything from his family. So he came on for adventure. Um, so they were not well equipped to survive. Some successful products they did find, though, were furs, so fur trapping, um, timber, and, of course, tobacco. Tobacco will be a cash crop that will save, that will save the English. Um, cities for England, there were no real cities of significant size, um, just those plantations that were uh, eventually going to pop up, and those would be your tobacco plantations. Um, and in South Carolina, you'd have your rice or your indigo plantations. So on your region varied what you would plant it for. Indentured servants were a migrant base of colonial uh, labor. So you'd have these people coming from Ireland, Scotland, um, England predominantly, um, not being able to afford their passage to the new world. So what they would do is have a benefactor pay for them or have someone who was already in the colony, colony pay for their passage over and then they would be indebted to them for at least seven years. Um, so they were free labor because, you know, I paid for you to come over here. So you're my property until this, your seven years are up. So the percentage of immigrants who were indentured servitude or indentured servants were 80% of immigrants. And the reasons were, you know, could not afford or another reason was punishment. Um, the English um, used indentured servitude as punishment. So they'd say if you, you know, went before a judge so many times or if a judge was trying to make an example out of you, he would say, you're going to, um, your punishment is indentured servitude into the colony. And that was a punishment being sent to the colonies as a slave. Or as an indentured servant, because there's a difference, sorry. So the year is a seven-year contract. After that, seven years is up. If you survived, if you survived, you were given land, clothes, tools, and um, an ability to try to take care of yourself. But if you take APUS or you've taken a push or U.S. history, um, you'll know what ends up happening there, but we're not going to talk about that because that is U.S. history. Not world. Um, we do see the creation of an assembly, which is known as the House of Burgesses, and it is the first elected assembly of the Virginia colony, and it was created in 1618, um, 11 years after the first group arrived in Jamestown. Um, and the fur trade did four things. The Indians increased the amount of, of furs that they were um, trapping, which altered the culture and all, as well as altered the environment. So increased from, you know, maybe a couple hundred or a couple thousand, um, whatever, to about 400,000 a year, 400,000 furs a year, very, very large increase. And this altered their culture because originally natives or Mary Indians hunted what they needed. Um, and then they used every part, you know, that's that's also a stereotype. They used every part. No, but they used what they needed. They didn't go out and overhunt what they did not. And that was a cultural ideology of the Native people or the um, Amerindians. They hunted what they needed. They didn't hunt more than that because they had a respect for the environment and respect for the earth and their surroundings. So they did not hunt more than they needed, but with this increased demand from the English, we see them changing their behaviors, their economic behaviors. We see them hunting these animals for profit instead of hunting them for sustenance or for survival. The French um, also started dipping into the Americas, and we see that they created a center in New Orleans and in Canada. 
So we see the French dominating the north and, of course, the very southern near the Gulf Coast. Um, the environment was disrupted because of this overhunting um, of animals, so it, it disrupts the local ecosystem. And, of course, we have a disagreement. The natives become dissatisfied with some of the agreements that they they strike up with the English, um, predominantly the English, because the French are actually pretty nice to the American Indians. But they get angry, and so they start uh, attacking the English because of false promises or not give, being given what they were told or whatever. Um, then we go down that down later to where we are in South Carolina and North Carolina. So we're in the Carolina coast. So right under Virginia, we see the creation of um, colonies in North and South Carolina. But we also see an increase in slaves in North America as well. And with the increase of slaves, we see an increase in new cultures or hybrid cultures. And one of these characteristics of this hybrid culture of African and European or African, specifically English uh, culture is Gullah. And Gullah is a dialect of African and English. And we see this along the Carolina coast. And this is um, a language spoken by those people that live there. Not of the Europeans, but of the Africans, their language. Then we have runaways. Remember, just like we had runaways in South America and Central America, um, they were leaving for their freedom, to get their freedom, as well as the mistreatment that they were, you know, having pushed upon them, forced upon them. In 1739 in South Carolina, we have our first rebellion, the Stoner Rebellion, which is where a group of 20 slaves seized firearms and rebelled against the masters and the uh, slave traders. So this shocked the masters, and this just resulted in greater repression and greater punishment for those who did try to rebel. And it scares the, the white people, really, let's just be honest. It scares them to death. Um, their fear is that they're going to be murdered by their slaves. So there's always this fear. We see that even beginning here, all the way until Antebellum South, until Civil War, that there is this underlining fear that the Africans will, or the slaves will rebel and kill them. It's ridiculous. Moving on. So, we also have mixed children. And then, of course, are the unions of Europeans or the English and their slaves. So, masters and their slaves. Um, and this, of course, 99% of the time aren't consensual relations. Um, so I don't think that it's this kind of romanticized version of the master falling in love with one of his slaves. Were there instances where that happened? Probably. I mean, I'm not going to say there wasn't. But most of the time, these women who were slaves um, did not have a choice. They were objects and they were treated as objects. Um, and that included uh, being raped and being sexually assaulted, as well as African men being sexually assaulted or slave uh, men being sexually assaulted. Um, so it wasn't something that you consented to. Um, but like I said, were there instances where maybe there was love? Maybe. Um, but how much freedom of choice do you have to love someone who owns you? So think of it that way. There's really no romantic way to put that. But anyway, children who were mixed held important positions in society. Um, if you were Native and European, you held very high um, status in the fur trading business. And if you were mixed of a slave or African slave and um, European, you held higher station in slave society. Meaning you had a better job. You most likely worked in the house or worked in more favorable positions 
instead of the other. So from the south, we move north to the New, New England region, and this is where we see the Pilgrims. The Pilgrims land in Massachusetts sorry, in 1620, and they establish the Plymouth Colony. Um, and they're really coming here to seek religious freedom. So this is our pilgrims. They are the Mayflower Compact. They are the ones who come because of um, intoleration in, in Europe and England. And then about 10 years later, we see the arrival of the Puritans. So pilgrims and Puritans are two different groups of people. The Puritans founded the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and they were English Protestants who were like to the extreme. So we have the pilgrims who were very lax, too lax for the English. And then you have the Puritans who were too fanatical for the English. So they were both kind of passed out as being heretics or, or um, radicals. Um, so they were both set out for different reasons. In 1625, we have 84% of the population in Virginia were male white. Um, so we do see that there's a difference there between the, the South and the um the, the North in New England, that initially the Southern states are all a business venture. Southern colonies are a business venture and they send males to do those business, whereas the New England um, colonies are more family-based. They're bringing women on the first journeys. They're bringing children. They're trying to establish a new world for themselves. So there's a difference. So in 1643, we see an influx. So 13 years after the Puritans arrive, there's 20,000 more Puritans there. So the increase of people coming to the Massachusetts Bay Colony is drastic. Um, so again, newcomers came with their families. This was not a business venture. This is definitely um, something that they were just trying to create a new place to live. Um, how did the government in the colony evolve? So the government in the colony evolved by initially creating a charger. I mean, not a charter, sorry, a charter and creating a legislative body. And this allowed for greater autonomy in the colony. So they created this, you know, and sent it to England and said, you know, this is what we're doing. This is what we need. And this is what we need to do to be successful here. Because it was different. And that gave them a little bit more leeway because they, England knew that, yes, you still have to follow our laws, our taxes, things like that. But, you know, you have your leeway because it is a different environment. It's a different region. So how did the economy in the colony evolved. So we see in, in New England, their economy is based on commercial shipping. They had very increased flexibility on what they could trade and what they could produce. Um, they were very well versed in what they needed to do to create this economy and create this trade. So they were well researched, as well as they as knowing how to streamline organizations. These are the things that allowed them to be successful and allowed for the evolution. So commercial shipping was created, increased flexibility in what they could trade or what they could create. Uh, they had huge advantage of the market because they've researched it. And they also made the organization of it more efficient. And slaves in the New England, there were present. You did have slaves in the New England colonies, um, but they were very, very small in number compared to the South. Because the difference between the southern colonies and the northern New England colonies is that um, the southern colonies had large plantations and the New England colonies were more family farmed that they could do it on their own. They did not require a lot of slave labor. So going ahead and moving to the center of the English colonies, we have the Middle Atlantic region or the Mid-Atlantic region, you can call it. And this is settled 
not initially by the English, but it will end up being an English region. But first we have the Dutch West Indian Company. So this began in 1624. And the region of the Mid-Atlantic, which would be New York, which would be Pennsylvania, which would be Maryland, um, would be called New Netherland. And the capital would be Manhattan Island. So this is New York. Um, During this time, we have a consolidation of native populations under the Iroquois Confederacy. And this was a diplomatic alliance of five native groups. So these five native tribes came together, consolidated their power, and like kind of became a legislative body for themselves. They were political allies, they were economic allies, they were social allies. They kind of worked together. So that was the Iroquois Confederacy. New York City for the Mid-Atlantic was the commercial and shipping center of the region. So New York, even still today, is a large commercial center. Even from the beginning, it was a large commercial center. New York's population was very diverse. It was a mix of various European um, countries. You had English, you had Dutch, you had German, and you had Swedish. So it's very much a um, Northern European populated area. Um, So we see a lot of Dutch, German influence and Swedish influence and British influence in there, even up to today. So you have like um, New Haven or you have Manhattan or you have these areas that have a lot of Dutch influence. Um, Pennsylvania becomes a colony as a refuge for Quakers. Remember, you were Protestant or you were Puritan. If you did not follow um, those religions, then you were outcasted and one of these groups were the Quakers. Um, the positives about Pennsylvania is that it had a healthy climate. It had amazingly fertile land. It was perfect for planting. And the people of Pennsylvania had very, very friendly relations with the natives. So it was one region in the New World that the English and the Dutch colonists were very friendly and very nice to the native people. Uh, Quakers were persecuted and they were the religious minority. Remember Quakers, they are um, against violence, against war, uh, against a lot of different things. They're very more... Uh, loving, very kind of, very spiritual, very God-centered people. Um, why were so many slaves in South Carolina while there were few in Pennsylvania? So why do we have these large populations of slaves in the South compared to Pennsylvania? Well, South Carolina largely depended on slave laborers for their large crops. Remember, these are the areas of plantations. So Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, eventually um, Georgia, these would be all places that had very large plantations. Initially tobacco, then it would it could be rice, it could be indigo, and then ultimately it would turn into cotton. But these were areas that had large plantations that needed large labor force. Pennsylvania produced crops that were family farms. Families worked together. That's why you had very large families. They did all the work. They really didn't need slaves. Um, there was no need for that type of labor. So now we're going ahead and move on to French America. Um, Their number one trade item for the French was fur. That's why we have the French-Canadian fur trappers or the French fur trappers or these large populations. Like later on when Lewis and Clark go on the expedition to find the Pacific, they meet Sacagawea and Sacagawea is married to a French trapper. And, you know, there we go. French is very influential to the area. New France is the French colony in North America. The capital is Quebec. It was founded in 1608. And then it was given to the British after the Seven Years' War in 1763. So during the French and Indian War or the Seven Years' War, we see this handed over to the English as something that they win. 
um, for the success of this concept. Um, Champlain is the founder of New France, and he creates the first colony on the banks of the St. Lawrence River. Um, so we see this as very French. So we're thinking, we think Canada and think of New Orleans. And then you had St. Augustine, but we don't talk about St. Couriers de Bois, these were the group of French fur traders um, of mixed heritage. So the runners of the forest is really the kind of rough translation of this. The Couriers de Bois um, are the runners of the forest or the forest runners. Um, and these were the children of those relations between native women and French trappers. Uh, Metis were the actual name for the uh, offspring. So how you have mestizo, um, mulatto, matisse is the French version of mestizo. Uh, Mary Indians depended on three, four things from the Europeans. Um, that is firearms, metal tools, textiles, so clothes, um, and then alcohol. So these are the four things that the French trade and that the English end up trading with. And the Spanish, not so much. Um, but the French and the English are really trading these items with them. Firearms, because why would they need firearms? Maybe to protect themselves or fight people. Metal tools, because all they used were either stone or wood. Tools, textiles, new clothes, so they can emulate their new neighbors. Um, and then alcohol. They had never, ever had alcohol. Alcohol is not a thing that is known to natives until the Europeans. So we, why we see many native groups eventually have alcoholism as a issue within their communities, it all leads back to the root of this introduction of this or this substance to the Native people. Um, negatives from trading with the colonists for the um, Natives were that they saw overhunting of animals, which was a loss of food for the Native people and the destruction of the ecosystem. We see increased tension between tribes because each tribe is now, instead of cohabitating with each other. They're competing with each other to see who could trade with the Europeans more or be more successful or have more items. Um, another reason is warfare became deadlier um, with the introduction of firearms where warfare was crazy. And then of course, we had an increase in warfare. So not only was it more dangerous and more violent, we had more of it because of it. Um, firearms in specific for um, the Iroquois or specifically for the Iroquois, was decimating for other tribes. So the Iroquois used the firearm to basically eradicate its enemy, and in specific, the Huron. They almost eradicated this tribe in 1649, um, and it backfired on the French, which are the ones that supplied them, because they turned around and basically almost attacked the French also. Um, French Jesuits are the Catholics who try and come into the French colony and convert the natives. Um, their success was mastering the native language. So the French are very different from the Spanish and from the um, English because they very are much willing to assimilate and be a part of and kind of cooperate with the French or with the natives. The French are the most um, tolerant of the Europeans in that sense. So they are mastering native language. They're setting up these agricultural communities, creating schools. They're really trying to flourish the community and really work with them. Um, how did the French treat the natives compared to other European treatments? Um, they were allies in trade and war. They were very well treated. And then, of course, we have the French and Indian War, which is from 1754 to 1763. And this conflict forced 
the natives to yield land to the English. So when they lost because they sided with the French, they lost their land to the British. Uh, what happened to the trade colonies? So this is where we're looking at imperial reform in Spanish America and Brazil. So that in the trade, um, in the colonies, we see a reorganization under new trade policies, the creation of commercial monopolies. Um, some of the items that were expanded under these reforms were tobacco, alcohol, and chocolate. These trade items were expanded. Um, Jose Gabriel Condor Canqui. He was a Mara Indian leader, and he was from Peru, so he was a Peruvian Mara Indian. And he wanted to end Spanish rule and stop the local injustices that were occurring on the natives. So he was seeing all these injustices and all this oppression and all this violence being um, put onto native people that he wanted it to stop. So he kind of rebelled against him. So Jose Gabriel changed his name to Tupac Amaru II. Um, so the original Tupac Amaru was an Amer uh, Indian uh, an Incan elite that was murdered by the Spanish. So Jose Gabriel kind of calls on his ancestors, takes the name of his ancestor, and rebels against the Spanish in 1780 to 1781. Amaru was mad about two things in particular. That is the Mita system, that forced system that the Spanish used, and just unjust tax on the natives. Um, so reform and reorganization within British America or in the English. Um, under King Charles II, we see a greater control over the colonies. So he's expanding his control between 1651 and 1653. And we also see the introduction of the Navigation Act. This is limited colonial trade and production. Basically, the monarchy is saying you can only trade this amount and you can only trade with these people. James II comes in um, and he is overthrown in 1688 um, and the Navigation Acts are ended. So now there's more open trade um, for the colony. New York, um, the colony over overthrown by the governor. So the colonies overthrow their governor initially, and they set up someone who is more uh, more local, more someone that knows the needs of the people. And then we have England versus uh, France and Spain. Who won? Well, England wins um, the colonial, what is it? Colonial raffle. They're the most successful. Um, Spain is weakened um, and they become very weak. And we just see from really after Philip, um, the second, we see this decline, and then we'll just see it decline further and further and further, um, especially when Mexico gains its independence and, um, from Spain and all that. Um, and France almost is completely wiped out after the French and Indian War. They are The only thing they really have is the um, Louisiana Purchase, and that will be given to the American the West. So who paid for all these wars? We see the colonists paying. People of the colonies are ones that are, will be paying for these conflicts between the Europeans, which is one of the reasons why why the American colonists have such a hard time wanting to repay the British for their protection. Um, so that's basically the wrap up of chapter 17. So go ahead, make sure you're listening to this. If you've listened to this, um, if you have any questions, again, leave me a message or ask me a question. Um, but let me know if there's anything else I need to do or change or do differently or whatever. Like, I, like always, um, I hope this is helping you and I hope this is beneficial for you. Um, and again, I will come back on episode um, five. I believe we're already on the fifth episode. Yeah, episode five. And it will be over chapter 18. And I look forward to recording it. Okay, I'll talk to you guys later. Bye.